Welcome back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Today we have uh, host Ashley Colby. Uh, Stephen Morris is also online with us as well as myself. And our guest, I think for most of our audience needs no introduction. Uh, I think you've been, uh, your writing has been very influential for many of us. Um, and that is JMG, John Michael Greer. How, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's always, it's always entertaining to have a chance to talk with people who, who, don't, who don't have to be convinced that maybe there's something going a little wrong with the grand upward march of progress, blah, blah, blah. So I'm looking forward to this. Great. Yeah, we, we, we don't need to be convinced. We're, you know, our, the, whole, the whole idea behind Doomer Optimism is in order to be optimistic in any mm-hmm. real sense of the word, you have to metabolize the doom, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a little bit dramatic, you know, it's just kind of fun to be a little dramatic about it. But, um, you know, we, live we in also... Good. Yeah, we live ahead. in dramatic times, so we yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so why don't we give you a chance to, to introduce yourself in your own words, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Um, at any, as, as, as the man said, I'm John Michael Greer. I've been a writer, blogger, um, general gadfly, and um, pain in the rump to the, the, those with, um, unfortunately, too rigid ideas for a very long time now. Um, I, for many years, for what was it, 12 years, something like that, I, I ran a, um, a blog called The Archdruid Report, which reported on, on peak oil and the twilight of industrial civilization generally. These days, I'm on another blog called Ecosophia. Um, do not read either one of them if you if you want to have all of your ideas patted on their pointy little heads and, and agreed with. <laughs> um, and I write lots of books. I write lots of blog posts. I do various other things in my spare time. It's one of those things. I, I live I live in Rhode Island these days. That's kind Wonderful. of me. Yeah, that's perfect. And I thought that I would start just to to kind of set the stage for the conversation. I was um, rereading The Long Descent, your book, um, and I found this quote that was such a perfect explanation of what we're doing here on this Mm -hmm. podcast that I figured I'd just read it out loud um, to get us started. So the quote goes, it's on page um, 151. The one question is whether enough people will embrace the challenge of rebuilding civil society in time to make a difference on a community scale or whether as in the declining years of so many past empires, it will be left up to small groups on the fringes of society to embrace a path of mutual aid and preserve today's legacies for the future. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, just to get us started, I mean, maybe you can uh, unpack that a little bit. We're, we're pretty interested in this intersection of collapse, failure, and what arises out of it, and the diversity mm-hmm. of that, and then, um, you know, basically to try to give people a landscape of what kind of things they should be thinking about or preparing for um, <laughs> is, the, is the idea, although, you know, that, that sure. can mean literally, you know, rebuilding entire institutions and society, so <laughs> it's, a, it's an extremely diverse range of things. It's, 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 a, it's a very diverse problem. Um, well, basically, we can start with the fact that industrial society is falling, not is going to fall, please note, is falling. We've actually been in, um, in, in decline since the 1970s. It's been papered over in various ways, and all kinds of distractions have been waved around. Waved around. Hey, look at this technological gimmick. Stare at that and pretend, maybe it'll help you pretend that your standard of living hasn't dropped by 10% over the last decade. Um, we, we, are, we are in a society in decline. 
It's not a matter of when it'll happen. It's a matter of how bad it will get, how soon. Um, I think many of us have, have recently experienced um, grocery, grocery store shelves and other store shelves with big gaps on them. We've noticed problems in the supply chain. We have problems, a little bitty problems with public health. Um, all the things that normally happen when a civilization is going, is going to bits. Now, the question that I asked in that quote, and it, it's, it, oh, hey, well, I, I should praise myself here, right? It's a great quote. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the question is, to what extent is industrial society prepared to deal with this reality? And to what extent are, are people going to spend their time staring at, at, at screens, um, you know, gazing at imaginary tomorrow lands while drool puddles in their lap? Um, unfortunately, so far, since the, since the publication of that book, uh, right up to the present time, um, the answer has been very, very few. Even among those people who claim that they are aware of the, of the predicament we're in, who claim that they understand blah de blah de blah you know, then they get back on their, into their SUV and drive three blocks to the grocery store. <laughs> um, they just go on with their lives. That is not going to cut it. The question, there was, there's this marvelous poem by Rainier Maria Rilke, the German poet, where it ends up, he's, he's confronting this, this um, Greek statue of Apollo, and what the statue is saying to him, not, not in so many words, but the, the impact that it has on him is simply the words, du musst den Leben andern, you must change your life. And that's the question we face. How many people are willing to change their lives? How many people are willing to do, uh, to use a slogan that I've used repeatedly, are willing to collapse now and avoid the rush, to make changes before they're necessary so you can land on your feet as various items of industrial society drop out from, from beneath you? That's the question. Fortunately, there are people who are making those changes. There are people who are cutting back on their energy usage, who are learning ways of doing things that don't depend on having a gargantuan industrial technostructure to take care of them, who are making various adjustments to deal with this sooner than they absolutely have to. That's crucial. There aren't many of them yet. So the answer to the question is very clearly at this point, unless something changes, it's going to be small groups on the fringes of society. The question now is... Um, how many of those can we encourage to come into existence? Can they, have, can they network? Or is it just going to be little groups here and there that are working all, pretty much all by themselves? And, you know, we, that's a question that hasn't been answered yet. Yeah, I kind of see, you know, besides just a podcast, uh, what we're trying to do on Doomer Optimism. So we're active on social media like, like Twitter and stuff. And, but really what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is, is network, uh, mm -hmm. you know, people across, across the world uh, who... Have a similar sensibility um who who do want to collapse now and avoid the rush who want to you know localize their dependencies you know learn how to maybe grow food or mm -hmm. capture energy in ways mm -hmm. that don't depend on the, the industrial grid um maybe i think uh before we go further um your notion of catabolic collapse i, I think is, is a really good summary of you know why industrial civilization is going going the way it does mm -hmm. and we actually so when we actually posted on twitter that we were having this conversation with you and one of the questions we had you know was we'll ask them about fusion energy or geothermal if, if there's <laughs> if you think that that there's any any chance that catabolic collapse could be forestalled a few decades or 
you know, uh, century. Um, okay. Or, yeah, so first, feel free to take that wherever you want. Point, okay, point number one. Again, it's not when collapse is happening. We are already in the process. So uh, we kind of have had, you, you, you know, we kind of had, would have had to get this started a long time ago. Fusion power is one of, is one of many things that um, people always bring up. And, and there's, a, there's a large industry in the physics community that's dedicated to flushing vast amounts of money down a collection of high-tech rat holes, claiming that they're going to solve the fusion problem. There's one, there was an announcement uh, just the other day. The, um, what is it? The Joint European Taurus um, in, in England had managed to produce, um, in a five-second burst of fusion, enough heat that if it was all captured and turned into usable energy, um, it could have powered a house, one house, for a day. And there are the media is out there yelling, look, this proves that fusion power is functional, blah, blah, blah. What they didn't mention is, first of all, they had to shut it off after five seconds. Partly it collapsed after five seconds, but partly they're going to have to take the whole machine down and replace it because the pressures and temperatures they've been using have damaged it too greatly to keep using. After five, after they, they've done several five, you know, several second bursts. Okay, so how are they going to be running this twenty four seven? They didn't say. How are they going to capture that outburst of heat? Because, you know, just stray heat doesn't um, provide power. It doesn't provide um, the things that people need energy. They're not saying. Um, they basically, they, they, it's, it's a stunt. And like most of the high-tech stunts these days, it is a white elephant of the classic example. You can do it after a fashion if you're willing to flush billions of dollars down a rat hole. Nuclear power, all nuclear power is the same way. Every nuclear, every fission power technology is cheap and clean and efficient and affordable until it's actually built. And then it turns out to be another dog like the others. So I'm expecting any minute now there will be some new um, fission reactor style and everyone will be going, oh, this will save us, you know, another umpty billion dollars will go down that rat hole. And it will turn out to be overpriced and underperforming like all the others. Geothermal, here again. When I, was in, when, when I was in high school, when I was in high school in the late 1970s, um, I, I was in the debate club. And I don't know how they do it more recently, but back in those days, they would have a topic for the year's debate, uh, school debate clubs. And I think it was 78, 77, 78, or 78, 79, one or the other. The topic du jour was the energy crisis. And geothermal got hashed and rehashed and re-rehashed. And all the same arguments that are being used for it now were used back then. And they all fell over flat for the same reason. It's too diffuse. Now, energy concentration. This is a concept many people don't get. You get the idea. You you still hear these claims. That, you know, enough sun falls on, you know, X area of land to power all of industrial civilization. Blah blah blah. No doubt. Okay. Equally, there's an enormous amount of gold in seawater. Try extracting it at a, at a competitive price. You can't do it. It costs more than it's worth. In the same way. Um, if you had one hand held out so that the sun was shining on it and another hand in a bucket of burning gasoline, you'd notice the difference in temperature. That's energy concentration. Um, the burning gasoline can power um, is that that has enough energy concentrated in it that by burning gasoline in, a machine, in, in an engine, 
you know, you can drive machines, you can do things like that. Sunlight, you have to concentrate it first. Second law of thermodynamics, when you concentrate energy, you lose some. Every transformation of energy loses energy. That's the law of entropy. And so that's why all of these gimmicks to power the world using solar power, which, by the way, have been going on for more than a century, um, actually more than a century and a half at this point, um, they don't work because sunlight's too diffuse. We're 96 million, dollars away, or million miles away from the, um, for, from the power plant, and a lot of power gets lost from point A to point B. So we're in this we're in this situation. People keep on coming up with, oh, here's this energy resource. Here's this. Well, no, none of the things they're coming up with have the combination of concentration, abundance, and fungibility, which means you can use it for many different purposes. That combination that petroleum has, that coal has, that natural gas has, that made industrial civilization possible. Okay, now. That's all one. That that's all one big lump of why um, the latest fusion pipe dream, or the latest geothermal pipe dream, or the latest solar pipe dream are not going to do the job. The other thing is that it's a complete misunderstanding of catabolic collapse. And I know a lot of people have taken to using the word, and I don't think most of them have actually read my paper on the subject, or any of the discussions of the subject in my book. I probably need to do a blog post on it sometime soon. To, to try to break through. Catabolic collapse is not just a way of saying, ooh, everything falls to bits. It's a specific theory. The way catabolic collapse works is very simple. Societies build more stuff than they have the resources to maintain. It's like, you know, if, if, imagine, imagine that you have, um, imagine that you win the lottery, okay? And you, you win the lottery and you decide you're going to build this huge mansion up on a hill. Okay, and you have enough money to build a mansion. You build the mansion, okay, and it uses up all the money. Now, how are you going to maintain it? How are you going to pay the property taxes? How are you going to pay the power bills, the heat bills, etc., etc., etc.? Pretty soon, your big house on a hill is falling apart, and you've had to leave for a cheap apartment somewhere because you know your salary won't, whatever income you're making, won't pay the upkeep costs. In short form, that's what happens to civilizations. They build more capital than they can maintain. And that's ca catabolic collapse is what happens when the, capital, when the maintenance budget runs too far below. And all of this, all of this structure, all this stuff has to be let go to, go to ruin. Okay, now that I've ranted at you for a while. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just actually reading your original paper on catabolic collapse a few days ago. So I'm, I'm a little oh, late thank to the party, but I'm, I'm trying to get caught up. And no, that's really fine. You've, you've read it at all. I'm happy about that. I mean, to be fair, some of it I kind of glazed over with all of the, you know, the, the symbols and, you know, getting mm -hmm. into the mathematics, but I think I got it. But what I really loved about it is you're relating it to kind of ecological succession, mm -hmm. and how this also happens in ecosystems. Do you want to, do you want to describe that real quick? Oh, sure. Yeah, one of, one of the basic rules, that, okay, now, let's start with a warning here. There are, um, there are people in the life sciences who insist on um, that the, the concept of ecological succession is irrelevant and invalid, because I think they've thought through the consequences. Um, in fact, it's one of the basic principles of ecology that ecosystems will tend to go through this pattern. We see it in all kinds of different life forms. The classic example is um, you have a, um, let's say you have a vacant lot, 
Okay, we had a vacant lot, the, the, the builders went and cleared everything, and then they went bankrupt. Oh, you know, 2008 comes to mind here. Okay, what happens to that vacant lot? Um, first of all, weeds start growing up. What do we mean by weeds? Weeds are plants that are opportunist. They function where there's a lot of unused resources. They burn through the resources in a hurry, and then they're squeezed out, typically by grass. You know, things like crabgrass and so on, not, not your lawn grasses. And then, which use the resources a little more efficiently and are a little slower, a little less opportunistic, and last for longer. And then those are squeezed out by shrubs. And then those are squeezed out by the first generation of trees. And then those are squeezed. Eventually, through several cycles, you get to the point where you've got a climax forest again, if it was a forest region or what have you. So basically what happens in any situation where you have an ab a sudden abundance of resources is you go through this process where it starts out with reckless, careless, short-term exploitation, weeds, and goes through progressively more, um, more efficient, more slow, more patient, more stable forms until eventually you get to the climax community, which lasts until the next batch of builders come along and, and bulldoze the place again. Um, this is also what happens with societies. You can watch this in, in many um, archaeological contexts where a society will come in, like you know, some, some tribal peoples, um, when, they, when they reach the New World. A lot of big, tasty animals got killed in a hurry. And then they ran out of big, big, tasty animals and had to regroup. Societies collapsed. New societies were founded. Eventually, you get to the, to the historic Native American peoples who were incredibly efficient in their use of natural resources. They learned that, you know, over 20,000, 30,000 years of human experience. The same thing is what's going on right now. We broke into this immensely um, concentrated, immensely rich body of resources called Earth's carbon reserves, the coal, the oil, the natural gas. We busted and do it, figured out how to exploit most of it, ran through it in a blinding uh, rush, wasted the vast majority of it. And so the weed that we call industrial civilization has basically run out of, um, of cheap, easily attainable nutrients. So what happens now? It gets replaced by slower, more efficient, less extravagant ways of doing things. That's the transition we're in right now. Yeah, this this leads, I think, to to another um, mm -hmm. so question. Uh, you know, oftentimes I, I think people have this binary view of either it's business as usual or it's imminent doom. And what oh, I God, yes. about your work is that, you know, I feel like you're very nuanced about what our lives are actually going to look like, you mm -hmm. know, in the next few decades. And there's this kind of, you know, what I would call a pragmatically hopeful stance. If you, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you recognize it and you, you collapse, you know, and avoid the mm -hmm. rush, um, mm -hmm. of course, you know, nothing's guaranteed. I, I read your book, Dark Age America and, you know, there's local warlords and, you know, we're all kind of subject to the contingencies of history. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, there seems to be a, a place for doom or optimism, for, for pragmatic oh. hope in your vision. Um, Very much so. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to, I don't know, sure. <laughs> do you want to talk about oh, that? I, well, no, you wait. know what? And I, 
And I would just add to that, um, I'm Go thinking ahead. about a little um, a piece from your book, just as, as an example um, from The Long Descent, because this is the one I grabbed today, um, thinking about a salvage economy and how mm -hmm. people might take alternators, there's half mm -hmm. a million alternators, um, take one, add some gears and a salvaged uh, and a chain salvaged from a bicycle and some steel borrowed from an old truck, spend a week carving and sanding a five foot length of spruce into a propeller and you've got a windmill that will trickle charge a set of scavenged lead acid batteries and run a 12 volt refrigerator, take it from an old RV. So I, I to me, like it's a perfect example of um, mm -hmm. like the material way in which, you know, we might be doing some experimentation um, yeah. and, and people already are, but, um, you know, I think. Exactly. Now, I, I, one, one thing I want to say about that specific example first is that this is not a theoretical example. I did this in college. <laughs> I was a, 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 one of a group of people. The, we had this little hippie farm just south of campus called the Outback Farm. And that's where I learned organic gardening and a number of other things. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a marvelous experience. Um, I was living, we, those of us who were living on the farm, we had no central heat. We had no running water. We had no electricity. We had none of the things that most people think are essential for life. We, had a, we, we were fine. <laughs> it worked just it worked it worked entirely well it you know it's one of those things it's really useful to do that so you can realize just how much of what passes for ordinary industrial lifestyle is luxury not necessity now we wanted um some power for the chicken coop we had a chicken coop hippie farms generally did um, we wanted power for the chicken coop, and so uh, one of one of the people who was involved with the project had the necessary background in engineering. Drew up some plans. We got an old truck alternator, free. We got some, you know, some metal. We got some wood. We did all these various things. We put up the um, th this this little windmill, and um, up on the up on top of a pole, and there it was going, whoopity, 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 turning out a steady trickle charge of 12 volt, which we used to power a light bulb, <laughs> which the, the hands really appreciated. They liked, they liked having, having light in the daytime. So <laughs> it, made, it, it made them happier in the wintertime. But yeah, so this, thing is this, this kind of thing, it isn't just a theoretical possibility. Back in the 1970s and the very early 1980s, during the heyday of the appropriate technology movement, this kind of thing was all over the place. Then we had the, the, the point when um, most people across the industrial world crumbled and chickened out and decided they were not going to face the future. They were going to pretend that everything was going, going to be hunky-dory forever. And that all went away in a hurry. That was after Ronald Reagan's second, um, after he won his second term with a landslide. And that just dried up and blew away. And some of us still remembered and kept the old books, and most didn't. This, that's another long, complex story. But the thing is, to, re, to revert to the, to the core thing here, the whole fixation about you know, utopia versus apocalypse, okay? Either we're headed to, the, to some Star Trek future metastasizing across the galaxy, or we're all going to die next Thursday in a Hollywood <laughs> spectacular catastrophe. They're, these are the only two futures people are willing to think of. And the reason for that is that those are the futures that, keep, that are being presented to us by the governing classes of our society. Um, the, the Star Trek future is what happens if we let them do what they want. 
the apocalypse is how we're all going to die horribly if we stop them from doing whatever they want. Now, this may seem like very dubious, a set of very dubious claims to you. It certainly does to me. But that's where it all comes from. It's just, you know, the, sci- the, the scientific manager and the leader all saying, no, 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 you've got to let us do this or else we're all going to die, and, and so on and so forth. It's a crock of crap, to be frank. It's, it, it's sheer propaganda, but people have internalized it. And so even among those people who reject the techno system, who reject the, that, the whole mindset behind um, industrial managerial rule, they look at that and they say, oh, that means everyone's going to die next Thursday. That's the better alternative. And it's the only alternative they'll let themselves think of. So breaking out of those set of mental manacles and thinking, okay, how do societies actually decline? What happens when a big, sprawling civilization outruns its resource base? We know this. It declines. It doesn't crash overnight. It goes through the same long, ragged process of contraction that we're in right now. Look out the window. <laughs> and so, yeah, many, many people are still stuck in that, in that delusion of um, utopia or oblivion. That was, a, that was a Bucky Fuller book. And Fuller had some good ideas, but he had a lot of very bad ones, and that's one of the worst. You know, utopia or oblivion? No, sorry. That we can call it the Bucky Fuller fallacy. One thing I've been thinking about lately is how kind of material decline, catabolic collapse, mm-hmm. is often uh, interpreted by people in kind of wildly different ways right mm-hmm. there's kind of scapegoat dynamics um there's you know people come up with all sorts of reasons why you know their lives aren't as good as they used to be they mm-hmm. don't really have to do with the material realities and, and this mm-hmm. I, I can't help but relate this to another question we had from somebody um that do you see the the spiritual and magical implications of crypto nfts that the the metaverse and i'm thinking about this in terms of like just all of the memes, right? And all of kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, our headspace and digital reality and, and all of these just different uh, justifications we have for, for, mm-hmm. for why things are going the way they are. And, mm-hmm. and maybe you want to, con- you know, I'm curious about your kind of magical interpretation of how we're, as a society, collectively responding to catabolic ca- collapse. <laughs> okay. Um, the first thing I, I would point out, there's this great scene from Sal- in Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, where I, one, one of the prophets, I forget which prophet it is, he's got his followers, he's leading them boldly forward. They come to the sea, and he says, believe in me, trust in me, and he walks out into the ocean. Now this whole crowd follows him, and they vanish beneath the waves, and after a little while, bodies start bobbing up, drowned, you know. <laughs> and the, one of the points that and okay, we're about to get into some serious occult philosophy here. Hang, grab your tarot cards and hang on tight. You can handle it, yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, one of the basic principles of occult philosophy it has been phrased, the planes are discrete, not continuous. Discrete, that's D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, not E-E-T. That doesn't mean that they keep secrets. It means they're separate. The material plane is what it is. 
the other planes, what what's a lot of occultists call the inner planes, each of them is what it is. There are connections between them, but the connections are subtle. Now, you can do a lot of magic. You can do all the magic you want to, and it will not refill an empty oil well. Okay? <laughs> the material yeah. world is governed by its own laws. The inner worlds are governed by their laws. If you know how to work with both, you can sometimes do some very clever things and some very useful things. But that doesn't mean that you can walk into the ocean and expect not to drown. It does not mean that you can walk, you can walk, step off a 20-story building flapping your arms and rise to heaven. And that's basically what people are thinking. I, I, I get this kind of stuff from people all the time. They say, well, you're an occultist. How come you don't think that we can, like, like magic more oil into the ground and this kind of stuff? And I'm going, <laughs> to, to borrow a, a phrase from, from a, a series that I don't even like much, oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> magic does not. If magic worked that way, um, the industrial industrialists would be all over it. You'd have, you know, anybody with any talent would be probably drafted to work in, you know, in, in Exxon's Department of Oil Remanufacture re or something like that. Magic doesn't work that way. Um, Dion Fortune, one of the great 20th century occult writers, defined magic as the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. People hear that, they think, oh, you mean psychology? Well, in a certain sense, psychology's been working on this for about 100 years. Magic's about 5,000. We've learned a few tricks. There are things you can do to transform your relationship to the world that can benefit you in very practical ways. But that does not mean that you can make the material world do whatever you want. Again, the planes are discrete. They're not continuous. You, the material world, the material plane, has its own laws, which have to be followed. Um, you know, and trying to get people, trying to get this through people's heads because, because, you know, we've got this Harry Potter schlock out there. I, I'm not a fan in case, in case you had any, you had any questions. Um, this Harry Potter schlock where what Harry Potter and his pals do is technology. It's not magic. You know, it's zapping stuff and, and blowing things up and casting these big whammies and all this kind of nonsense. Okay. Real magic is subtle. Real magic Real magic is much more elegant, and real magic works with the mind side of things, with, with human intelligence and human consciousness, and with the consciousness of other beings, not all of whom have bodies. So, in terms of, so, so, you know, in terms of classic occult philosophy, um, the thing that you do when you find you're running out of oil is change your consciousness so you can figure out ways to do without it because you're not going to be able to magically get back into the ground. And I think for me, the follow-up is um, this, um, the spiritual dimension um, mm -hmm. you know, about how do we move forward um, in collapse um, mm -hmm. with a healthy relationship towards spirituality. I think part mm -hmm. of what Jason was asking before is, you know, I, well, at least the way I see it is there are there are a growing number of cults um, mm -hmm. worshiping things in in my opinion like NFTs or cryptocurrency or <laughs> okay, and, yeah. and all this stuff. And then, but then in your book you were saying about you know you were talking a little bit about like the potential for um, see uh, reaffirmation of Christian Catholicism, um, the old monastic value of poverty, like 
they're they're uh, in, uh, adjacent to some of our doomer optimism circles are um catholics and traditional mm -hmm. traditional catholics who are interested in sort of the latin mass and poverty mm -hmm. and small I, scale I, production. i know the type i have a, i have a fair number of them commenting on my blogs <laughs> So yeah. So I'm wondering, like, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about the the way to approach spirituality and religion okay. collapse, like, and yes. to avoid the cultism. And and thank thank you for the reminder there. The first thing to keep in mind is that the divine is not a vending machine. You cannot put something into it and get goody, get a continuous flow of goodies out. Um, you know, spirituality is about relationships. And if you treat relationships purely as a matter of what you can get, um, you're going to find you're, you're going to be without a relationship real fast. Um, and religion is the same way. Spirituality is the same way. Um, the, there is a lot of talk in all kinds of traditional spiritual documents, and the Bible among them, about the worship of money. Um, Jesus called that mammon. And he, you know, he coming. You can serve God or you can serve Mammon, not both. And you know, it's as true now as it was in his time. You can chase profit. You can grovel at the feet of an NFT or something like that, and or, or uh, can be convinced that the great God cryptocurrency will save us all, or you can actually develop your spirituality. Don't ever try to do both, <laughs> because you know, cash is trash. Money, money is just a set of gimmicks for distributing, or shall we say maldistributing, um, material wealth. That's all it is. People have very unhealthy emotional attachments to this stuff. And so, and you know, the, the, there is also, of course, a deeper problem because I want you to imagine for a moment that you took a bunch of these, the, the crypto cultists, and gave them all a um, billion dollars each in Bitcoin, and dropped them on a desert island with no resources and no water. Okay? How well would they function with that billion dollars of, of, of crypto coin each? Probably not very well. They would starve to death, in fact, if they didn't die of thirst first. And money and money analogs such as cryptocurrency are just systems of tokens. They are not real wealth. Real wealth is things like food, drink, shelter, clothing, things that actually meet human needs. And the fixation, the fetishization of, um, of money in various ways, and you know, the claim that the love of money is the root of all evil, I think that's exaggerating, but the, the love of money, the fixation, the obsessive fixation on money is certainly the cause of a lot of them. So one of the first things to do if you're doing an authentic spirituality is to recognize there are entire worlds, you know, it may be necessary for you to have some money, but there are worlds where money means nothing. And while I'm, I'm not a traditional Catholic, I'm not even a Christian, I was never baptized. Uh, I'm an actual unbaptized heathen in a certain sense. Um, it's not my faith, but it's satisfying to many people. And I, I would like them to grasp the fact that the fact that it's satisfying to them doesn't justify ramming it down everyone else's throats. But, you know, you can only ask for so much. So there really does need to be a, a line drawn, a distinction between this fixation on manipulating the material world through money or money analogs on the one hand, and the quest for spiritual richness through 
interaction through community, through relationship with the divine, which is a very different thing. And oh, by the way, there are spiritual, there are there are disembodied entities, shall we say, that will happily feed your your uh, fixation on money and so on. You don't want anything to do with them. Um, there are every every spiritual tradition in the world that I've ever heard of has the concept of demons, aka malign non-physical beings. Do they exist? Well, the, the universe certainly behaves that way. And if you do a lot of magic focused on selfish and destructive ends, you will find these curious experiences of thoughts that are not your own whispering into your mind saying, you know, if you just did this, <clears throat> it's ugly. So one of, the, one of the real problems we face just now is we have a lot of people who are incredibly naive about the spiritual world. Either they think, with the, the more shallow end of the New Age pool, that once you leave the material world, everything is well-behaved sweetness and light, or they believe that the universe exists to give them goodies. And if they just, if, if they just you know, kind of feed their sense of entitlement enough, you know, the universe will just hand stuff to them. These are really self-defeating ideas. And unfortunately, they're very, they're very common, and they're, they are causing, and I think will end up causing, a great deal of destruction and misery. Mm. Maybe um, let's talk a little bit about green wizardry, mm -hmm. uh, how we can kind of bridge this gap of meeting needs, uh, mm -hmm. meeting our, our spiritual needs, and, and kind of a, you know, our kind of bare physical needs in a way that... Mm -hmm you know, is, in a way that's not extravagant. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the people in our network are really interested in things like homesteading. And I've, I've, I've seen some of your writing on it that, that you're a little skeptical. And I think maybe, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that kind of the core of your critique is you really need community, right? This notion of uh -huh. self-sufficiency, if, if that's your notion going into, say, I'm going to be a self-sufficient homesteader, you know, you're, you're fooling yourself, but if you, you think you can do it, you, yeah, you can do it. Like maybe like 1% of 1% of the population. No, no, it's, it it's very simple. Yeah. As long as you're willing to accept the lifestyle of a medieval peasant, you can do it. Yeah. The problem, yeah. no, seriously, the problem with trying to be self-sufficient is mm -hmm. that most people have no idea how much work it takes for a, you know, one person or the members of a family to produce, just to produce enough food for themselves to say nothing about clothing and, other, and their other needs. Yeah. Okay. When you, when all you have is that little pool of labor and the natural world, can you survive? Yes. Can you survive in any way that makes sense to um, 21st century people? No. Um, you can count on a very sparse, spare, limited diet, ample, certainly enough, to, you know, if you, if you know what you're doing, which of course many of these people don't, if you know what you're doing, it's enough to keep body and soul together. Um, I, think of, I think of medieval English peasants who ate um, a diet consisting largely of bread and um, what we'd call really thick split pea soup, peas porridge. Um, that was, those are the mainstays of their diet. Here's your loaf of bread. Here's your bowl of peas porridge. That's your meal today, tomorrow, the next day. You know, once a week, you might get some meat. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you're lucky enough to have a goat, you might get some, you'll get some milk during some portions of the year. Um, you probably, if you're lucky, you own two sets of clothing. 
um, other things. Um, your total worldly possessions could probably be, you can you can load them on your back and walk away with them without too much work because that's you know with that kind of energy pool that's all you can produce. Now, if you have a community, you can share out some of the labor. It's possible to do concentrated labor. You know, everybody can pile into planting and everyone can pile into harvest. You can do a lot of work in a hurry. And then you actually have some time in between and over the winter season where you can, do, you can produce a few luxuries. But the other thing that I would point out is we're not headed to the dark age next Thursday. We are in a failing industrial society. Okay, it's failing. It hasn't failed yet. Everyone who is listening to this to, to this podcast will be long dead before the decline finishes. That's that's the thing I keep on trying to to get through people's skulls. This is not something that's going to be over soon. So it's actually much more effective at this point to look at ways to leverage the resources that we have in society, to leverage the connections that we can build, the housing stock that we already have, the existing food distribution patterns and so on, so that we can simply begin moving a step at a time into, into simpler and, and less ecologically damaging ways of making a living, rather than trying to, trying to go you know, whole hog dark age right now. Yeah, that the the stair step kind of notion mm-hmm. that I've heard you talk about of catabolic collapse, mm-hmm. it seems to be conducive to that because we are going to have shocks depending on yeah. where we are. Um, but hopefully, most of us, you know, can wake up a little bit and respond to those and, mm-hmm. and rearrange our material mm-hmm. conditions and our, you know, yeah. relationships to to respond to that, right? Exactly. And, exactly. To be resilient. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the thing is right now. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think that, um, you know, to it it sounds extremely optimistic to me. (laughs) I mean, the the potential in your book, and I know that like, I don't know, there's for for us, part of the interesting uh, tension is the possibility that arises mm-hmm. in collapse and the pot and 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 how deeply unhappy so many people are in industrial mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know sort of forced somewhere new and i think thinking about um you have a little part in your book about how the the community not the individual is the basic unit unit for human survival history mm-hmm. shows local communities can flourish while empires fall around them mm-hmm. um i think that resonates so greatly with um the people who we, we hear from um they mm-hmm. want they want to start in that process of building community, um, mm-hmm. both as individuals building skills, but then, you know, mm-hmm. connecting with other people mm-hmm. um, who have mm-hmm. skills mm-hmm. and necessary, uh, mm-hmm. you know, local economies and production, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I yeah. think also bringing it back to the spirituality part, there's something in that process that's deeply meaningful, mm-hmm. too. So I think oh, yeah. there's, there's just a lot of optimism there. And I don't know, maybe we want to explore that a bit. No, I think I think it's a good point because the the thing is right now, since we have all these resources, there are things that each of us can do um, to start making the transition. I mean, right now, especially we we've got we've got a situation. I don't know how many people have noticed this, but the price of oil, that the classic measure of, of our energy situation, the price of oil is sky high right now. It's broken ninety dollars a barrel. And it's showing no signs of coming back down. You're, you're going to see the ga- gas prices continue to ratchet up. We have all of these situations where, once again, 
we've got an energy shortage to deal with. We've got these very sharp concerns. We can make changes in our lives right now. That can involve things like making contact with other people who are, have similar things. Home sharing. Um, I don't. People think, say community, and very often it's, again, this idea of we're going to get together, all this money, we're going to go build a community off in the woods, blah, blah, blah. No. No. If you want, if you want to do some real community building, get a bunch of people together and, and rent a house together. Okay? Learn how to live together. Learn how to work together. Um, learn how to insulate the place <laughs> and how to get by with a lot less money and a lot less. There's all kinds of possibilities. Um, right now we have the, the, the media is flailing around um, talking about this thing called the Great Resignation. And what's happening is that an enormous number of people during the, during the recent shutdowns realize that their jobs absolutely suck and their lives <laughs> suck. Yeah. And they also realize because their jobs were shut out, you know, they were shut out of their jobs by these, lock, by these lockdowns, and they discovered other ways of making a living. <clears throat> and so now all these big corporations are shrieking like gut shot banshees because the, the people they were counting on to come back and work for starvation wages under miserable conditions with humiliate with constant humiliating um, meddling by clueless management aren't showing up anymore. They're going, I don't need this. What we have here is an immense opportunity for people to shift into ways of making a living that actually makes sense. Because one of the one factor we have not dealt with in this discussion yet is the extent to which the, the superstructure of industrial society is parasitic, okay? Take, take, take any job you care to name. You've got somebody who actually does the work. You've got a customer who needs the work done. Then you have this immense superstructure of management and capital and money and, and blah, 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 which is being supported by bleeding off a portion of usually the great majority of the money that the customer pays the person who actually does the work. Now, what's happening in the Great Resignation is that an enormous number of people are simply saying, screw this, and they're going to people and saying, yeah, you know, I've got, I've got training as, as a nurse. Let me know when, you, when somebody in, your, in, you know, in the neighborhood needs nursing care, and we can handle it cash. <laughs> so it doesn't, have to, it doesn't support these vast, gargantuan structures. It's just two people engaging in an honest exchange. That's the wave of the future. And a lot of things are going to have to change before that, um, that, really, um, com that really completes its process. Right now, of course, real estate has become a complete racket. And again, the, the frantic attempt to bleed everyone dry by raising, raising rents and raising housing prices to insane levels. And how that's going to pop, I don't know, but it will. And there, there are all of these various factors that work moving toward a sharp simplification of society, which is going to leave a lot more options for individuals to make, to interact as individuals with, um, by, with buyers and sellers, with people who want things they can do, people who, have th who can do things they want, etc. There's a lot of possibility there and a lot of optimism. And all of that also ties into this whole green wizardry thing. Jason, you're yeah. muted. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, a term that comes to my mind is informal economies. And mm -hmm. this, might, this might lead into 
Um, there's a lot of people out there who, who are thinking about who, who want to build like an eco village or a planned community. Oh. Um, and something, oh. you know, and we entertain those ideas, but, but what we really try and emphasize is that, you know, much of this is going to be informal. It's going to be organic. It's going to mm -hmm. oh, like, just go meet your neighbors, like mm -hmm. patterns of functional interdependence with them, you know, yeah, so, yeah. you know. And you yeah, had a nobody. you had an essay uh, go that went around um, made the rounds on Doomer Optimism Twitter um, critiquing intentional communities and it really resonated. Um, mm -hmm. I think it, it was it was so uh, it was it, it was very angry in tone, but I think it was it, I, I can imagine maybe you can talk us through like this experience you have over years of seeing these people with big ideas and do these intentional communities and have them fail over and over again. It's, I think it's, it's just like it's, 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 yeah. It's no not pressure. even in my. It's not even just in my lifetime. The first great wave of intentional communities in North America happened in the 1820s. Right. Go pick up a you know uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know way back there in the early phases of American literature, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote this great novel. I highly recommend it called The Blythedale Romance, and it's set on a commune in rural Massachusetts in the 1820s. Okay. Nothing has changed. Not <laughs> one thing. This, one of, this is one of the things that is most fascinating about industrial society. If I, can, if I can insert something here, parenthetically, the number of things where people have these failed fantasies stuck sideways in their minds and cannot think around them. Flying cars. The first flying car was built in 1917. It flew. It drove. It was a lousy car and a lousy airplane. Everyone since then has been exactly the same thing. They're vast overpriced white elephants that don't do either job well, but people have this flying car stuck in their minds and cannot get past it. Intentional communities are exactly the same way. People have this notion, yes, we're going to go out into the country, we're going to found a commune, we're going to transform the world, and they've been doing it since the time, since the 1820s. And it never works. And the reasons it never works are all the same. Mostly it's because most of the people who do it are middle class. And they have very exaggerated ideas about what kind of lifestyle you can live on the basis of your own labor. <laughs> um, so typically, a community, a community like that either finds some kind of cash cow that it can milk to stay afloat or goes bust. Most of them go bust. Half of them are gone in less than two years. So, you know, and yet people are still stuck in this same fantasy. Or if I could do one thing it, it, to the people, to all those people out there who are, who, who are looking for new alternatives to the future, for the future, it would be to shake them until they realize, hold it, that's not a new alternative. You know, intentional communities, they weren't new in the 60s. They weren't new in the 1930s. They weren't new in the 1880s. They're certainly not new now. So how about we try something different? How about we actually try something new instead of the same old failed, you know, delusion? So, and I, and I think, I, I, just to add on to that, a lot of ahead. us are, are really critical of this utopianism. At, at, I'm you glad know, to hear that. Yeah, and out of collapse comes, you know, oh, we'll be saved, everything will be perfect, no. if, you know, and or, you know, yeah. we'll just make a cooperative 
X, Y, and Z, but then it just ends up failing. But w- there's a big man who takes advantage of the situation kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's mm-hmm. over and over again. So I think part of us, what, what we're interested in are like the lessons of these experiments from the past, from history, mm-hmm. even from the mm-hmm. recent past, um, and some practical and actionable ways forward. Um, Jason, you had a, had a follow-up, I think. Yeah, well, I'd like to get more in detail of some of the things you talk about in, in the Green Wizardry book mm-hmm. you know, about kind of what we can do to you know, help feed ourselves, warm mm-hmm. ourselves, mm-hmm. that don't rely on these kind of, you know, highly technological mm-hmm. fixes. Um, if, yeah. if you were to give like, say for our audience, like five things that, you know, somebody can do like right now to start, you know, tinkering. Oh, easy, easy, yeah. easy, easy. The first, the first thing to do is figuring out how to waste less energy. Just flat out. Um, back in the 1970s, it was found that you, most people could cut their energy use by 25% easy without actually impacting their lifestyle at all. All it took was a little extra insulation, maybe some window, some insulated window coverings, um, a few repairs to the faucet, little things like this. Foam gaskets, you know, behind each, behind the the, the electrical outlets on on exterior walls, little stuff like this. You can cut your energy wastage. That's going to benefit you hugely when the cost, as the cost of energy ratchets upwards. Okay. So learn to waste less energy, learn about things about insulation and so on. That's number one. Number two, um, start growing a little of your own food. Now that's again, a little. You don't have to grow all of it. In fact, you probably don't want to try to grow all of it unless you, again, you live out, you already live out in a rural area with, with you know, 100 acres or so. You don't need to. The bulk products, grains, beans, things like this, those are easy to come by. Those are very efficiently produced in large amounts. What you need are the things that have the, comp- the compact vitamins the, and, and minerals, things like that. So if, if all you can do is grow a couple of window boxes, then you're growing something. You're actually, and you're learning the skills. You're picking up the skills of home gardening, which is crucial. So, grow a little of your own food. Um, seriously assess um, your transportation use. Um, do you really need to live all that distance from your job? Do you, you know, assuming you still have one? Um, do you really want a commuter lifestyle? Um, do you maybe want to change jobs to work to, or, or change where you live so you're actually within walking range? Do you want to try changing some other things in your life so you don't have to use, you don't have to be dependent on technological transport? Now, the moment I suggest that, the thing that comes to mind, especially in middle-class people, is, well, I don't want people to think that I'm poor. Middle-class Americans are terrified of one thing above all else. They are terrified that people will think they have less money than they do. You're going to have to face that fear. You are actually much poorer than you think because most, most of the money you think you have is, you know, um, twinkle dust and, and um, illusions to start with. But you're going to have to face that. Um, but, yeah, learn to walk a little more. Um, another thing you can do, start taking more control over your own health care. Obviously, nowadays, that's even more important than usual because the health care system is, is <clears throat> in deep trouble. But if you, and the, if you can 
learn some old-fashioned home remedies. If you can learn maybe a method of alternative health care that works for you. If you can start taking care of your ordinary, everyday health issues, not by running to the store, much less by running to a doctor, but by going, oh yeah, I know how to deal with this, and using some kind of simple home remedy that will do just as well, in many cases better, and have far fewer side effects. Um, that's a very important one. And the fifth one is put more time into your inner life, okay? Many, many, many people these days, they, they basically don't have an inner life. Their, their minds have been colonized by a television tube. Everything that's in there is being put in there by corporate mass media. Um, the single most useful thing anybody can do right now, and I know this is unpopular to say, but it's true. Take your television, unplug it, walk to the nearest dumpster and pitch it in. If you can drop it off a fire escape or something so it blows it, so the, you know, the picture tube blows, if it, well, I suppose, I suppose few places have picture tubes these days, few, few televisions, but just, uh, you know, tip it in the dumpster. By, by getting rid of your television, you're suddenly going to have four more hours a day, on average, of time that you can actually have a life with. You're also not, feed, not basically throwing open your mind to a bunch of corporate media types who are going to fill it with what they want. I mean, there's a reason they call what's on television programming, you know. Mm -hmm. And so decolonize your mind, which means get the media out of it. Go on media, go on a media fast. A lot of, we were talking about Catholics a little while ago. I know a whole bunch of Catholic and Orthodox people who are, one of the things they're doing for Lent is giving up on media. They're doing a media fast for the 40 days of Lent. I think it's a wonderful idea. They're basically spending the time building their own inner lives, building their relationship with their God. It's wonderful. But generally, build your own inner life, spend time using your own imagination, not um, you know, just lapping crap off somebody else's plate. And and so, you know, just be be yourself. And not just not not like the, the all the people in the life of Brian, the Monty Python. It's like you know where he goes. You are all individuals, and they'll shout back in perfect unison. Yes, we are all individuals. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I mean that's that's today's America. That's today's America. Everyone wants to be individual, just like everyone else, and they do it by copying all the crap out of the mass media. <clears throat> no, turn off the tube, throw it away. Um, read books by people who are dead. <laughs> um, <clears throat> try something. Try doing something else with your mind. So, those are five things that I would I would encourage anybody, and, and really anybody can do those things. Yeah. If you have, if you happen to own, to own a house, if you happen to have access to surroundings, lots of other things you can do. But let's start with those five. Um, use less energy. You know, just as, as I said. Yeah, those are those are great. I think on the last one, the, the analog for us that that we need to be wary of is, so you know we're both both Ashley and I are on, are on Twitter a lot, and it's it's great for some things mm -hmm. like connecting with other Doomer Optimists uh, and sharing mm -hmm. you know, tips and tricks about how to raise chickens or grow vegetables, but mm -hmm. it is addicting, mm -hmm. and we are aware of that. Mm -hmm. kind of, it is, and it's in, it's designed to be, it's yeah, designed yes. to be addicting, yes. and. You, I'm going. To, I'm going to suggest the possibility, either that um, you you consider setting up a forum, 
a private forum with no advertising to handle such conversations on the one hand, or that you consider going to the Green Wizards Forum. I don't remember the URL right off, but if you look for Green Wizards, you'll find it promptly, which was set up by some readers of mine, and, and that's what it does. Yeah. It serves as a place to talk about chickens and, and insulation and stuff you do. So get out of the big corporations. If, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna stay online, extract yourself from these these um, deliberately addictive corporate structures. Create structures of your own. It's the equivalent of building you know building a place out in the countryside, except it's a lot cheaper. Um, some something comes to mind uh, when you said that. I, I I really love this example of the Odd Fellows. Um, oh yeah. It, in your book, and it, it's basically a like a civil society um, mm -hmm. that, that in which people, um, let's see, in 1819, originally founded in Britain, but there was an American um, version of it, um, oh, people yeah. paid roughly the equivalent of $20 a week, um, mm -hmm. and the money went into a common fund when a member was in good good standing but became too sick to work they received regular sick pay um visits from a physician mm -hmm. um funeral costs mm -hmm. at a lodge um this sort of um i guess uh loose voluntary association mm -hmm. is something that's it, it, i think increasingly interesting to mm -hmm. uh the the people here who are who are thinking about building community you know i think i am um, i am delighted to hear that now here's the first thing to keep in mind the Oddfellows still exist. <laughs> if your community has been around for a while, it may have an Oddfellows Lodge in it. Right, or the Grange. The Grange. The Grange. Right. Now, I, okay, <clears throat> full disclosure here, um, I have been active. I'm not currently active, and I've, although I'm still, I'm, I, I was not thrown out or anything. I'm still on the books. But um, <laughs> the Oddfellows, you know, I'm, I'm, but I, I'm a member of the Oddfellows, the Grange, and the Masons. I've done this stuff. It is worth doing. Um, in rural areas, especially, the Grange used to be the absolute heart and soul of rural, of rural community. And if you happen to be in a farming area or a former farming area that still has a Grange, join that puppy. Thing number one, you will meet a bunch of elderly people who know more about gardening than you ever will. You think you can't learn from them? Think again. Um, you also, it's, it's a little late now to meet people who made it through the Great Depression. When I originally joined the Grange, we had, we had some, a number of members who were young, who were kids during the Great Depression. And did they have stories about how to save money? Um, but these days, oh yeah, you, you can meet people who made it through the, the severe rural agricultural oppressions of the 1970s and 1980s. And they can help you out. Um, you know, get your months down to the Grange. Um, the Odd Fellows, they tend to be more urban, but again, they don't. They no longer have the um, the sick pay thing and so on because that was taken over by um, you know by by the governments. But the concept is still there, and crucially, if you want to know how to run an organization that's of a diverse lot of people who all have to work together. The fraternal, the old-fashioned fraternal lodges like the Oddfellows and the Grange, they will teach you how to do it. They do it by by democracy, not consensus. Consensus is the best way to waste time ever known to man. Um, oh, seriously, they, it's a complete disaster. Um, in it, 
well, we can get into that if you want to. But at any rate, they could teach you democrat, classic democratic process, how to, how to form committees, how to make decisions promptly and efficiently, how to make sure all sides get, the, get their say, how to reach an informal consensus if that's possible, and if not, get a decision made. Um, you can learn an enormous amount, and the rituals are really neat. I was talking about developing our inner lives. We, so many of us don't have that kind of ritual aspect to our lives. We're not used to symbol and ceremony anymore. The odd fellows on the Grange can, can help you through that. They have plenty to teach. Mm. I love that. I, I, I just can imagine um, a, a new wave of, of young people repopulating mm -hmm. these organizations and, and relearning ritual yeah. and connection and, and um, actually building out, you know, alternative institutions. I, I think, I think, a, I think the tendency of young people is always to let's make something new. Let's reinvent the wheel. And I just think like, uh, how cool would it be uh, for, well, for young ish people to, 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 to reinvigorate be... already existing institutions mm -hmm. like this? Let me let me turn that around. Um, do you happen to know if there's an Oddfellows Lodge or a Grange in your community, where you live right now? Uh, Jason or Stephen I, I can answer. I, 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 I moved my family to Uruguay, so I I, I can't answer that question. But maybe oh, Jason. Or yeah, Steven. I'm in uh, Northwest North Carolina and the Appalachians, and there should be. So I'm gonna. Oh, I'm you. Gonna... Oh, good heavens, yes. Um, my guess is you could probably find Granges. You could probably find Oddfellows Lodges. You could certainly find Masonic Lodges. Uh, you may be able to find various other lodges. There were something like three thousand five hundred different fraternal orders, not individual lodges, but different orders in America in 1900. Most of them have gone out of existence, but by no means all. Look around, see what you can find. Yeah, we've, we've got a couple granges in Colorado where I am, and there is an mm -hmm. international order of odd fellows in Boulder, Colorado. Oh yeah, nearby. yeah. And, and yeah, I know- And, and, and oh, sorry, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, I was just to say, I know um, someone younger than me who if, I don't know, five years ago or so, he had joined in part for the community aspect, he's a member of the integral or what was the integral community in Boulder. And mm -hmm. he was part of trying to get a bunch of people to reinvigorate that because there's a big gap. There's all the old mm -hmm. ones oh, yeah. Yeah. dying off. Well, let me, let me encourage, let me encourage those of you who are within reach and all of our listeners who are within reach, find out what there is in your community in terms of all of the old law orders and seriously consider going down and joining one. You'll be putting in one or two evenings a month. And dues are typically very modest. You're going to learn an enormous amount, and it will give you connections that you can use on a much broader scale than you have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. So give it a try. The thing is, there are the, the most amazing, odd little groups exist in this sort. There are there are ethnic lodges like you know, like the Sons of Norway. Um, there are there are all kinds of little organizations out there that have this this basic lodge structure. Most of them are extremely eager for new members. They would mm. love to hear from you and teach you everything you want to know about them. And you know, it's it's a simple investment. And it's especially if we do get lots of young people moving into these things, they can be reinvigorated, they can become what they once were, centers of community, frameworks for community resilience, and um, possibly the basis for restructuring society as things come unraveled. Yeah, speaking of that, so I, I recently read your book, Retrotopia, which I really, really liked. I'm glad um, to hear that. That, yeah, was, that and, was a fun book to 
right? <laughs> I, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. It was definitely very different than Dark Age America. Um, <laughs> similar, similar subject matter, but mm -hmm. uh, very different. And I'm wondering um, if you see prospects or, or like regional prospects of like, where do you see the most potential for Retrotopia? Is it the Great Lakes region uh, where you set it there? Or is it, and it might not be in the United States, it might be in other parts of the world. I guess if people are thinking about, you know, where do they, where do they have the best chance of landing in a future Retrotopia? Um, is that even worth speculating on? Well, the, first of all, we don't know. Yeah. Um, second of all, the best place to be is the place where you already have connections in the community. Mm -hmm. Third, if you want Retrotopia to be a possibility, start building it. Don't wait for someone else to make it for you. Look at the, you know, look at the possibilities for a different way of living. Look at the possibilities, if, you, if Retrotopia specifically turns your crank, for downshifting to a lower technological tier. You know, what would it take to get rid of this? What would it take to let go of that? How would it work? To live a simpler lifestyle, not a drastically simpler. You do again. We don't have to head for the Stone Age next week, but that's one of the things I, I wove into Retrotopia. People are, you know, downshifting to like a 1950s lifestyle. A 1950s lifestyle is like what 20% of current electricity is. It's it's much much lower energy. And you know, if you want to go further back to the 1920s, people in the 1920s did not live in caves. I know this will probably come as a surprise to any of our progress scenes out there, but there are a lot of technological stages between complete collapse and the latest gizmocentric gosh wow fantasies Tomorrowland. And many of them are frankly much nicer places to live. This is why you've got people these days who are literally sh shifting gears back to earlier technological suites and saying, no, I'm going to use this instead. It works better. So don't wait for someone else and don't, don't look for don't, the play. It's, it's, like, it's like Ernest Thompson Seton, who used to who did some marvelous youth groups about 100 years ago. He used to say, uh, the basic rule is where you are with what you have right now. Mm -hmm. No matter what the situation is, where you are with what you have right now, get to work. Retrotopia will come into existence if you choose to build it. Mm. Do you want to describe the multi-tiers? You, you mentioned tiers in, in, in the book. Oh, yeah, that's, five yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a gimmick. It's a, it, it's a gimmick that I used in Retrotopia to try to, sneak, to, try to, to, try to get people to think about the idea of, of downshifting their technology. The idea is that um, in Retrotopia, each county votes on which technological tier it's going to be in. There's, it's, um, I'm going to try to get these things right. There's the, um, the 1850, no, there's the 1950, the 1920, the 1890, and the 1890, and then 1860, I think, or 1850, was one. But there were, and the, 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 the highest tier, tier five, was um, immediate pre-internet. <laughs> and so it was a matter of each county would vote on which one of those tiers and would do a popular vote as to which one of those tiers they were going to have. And that determined what kind of property taxes you were going to pay. Because if you wanted those, that techno technological infrastructure, if you wanted um, the, you know, the roads that, um, that cars can drive on, if you want the, um, 
these various other things, you get to pay for them out of your own property taxes rather than borrowing the money and pushing it off on the, on the future, you know. And so different counties would, you know, one county would go for a 1950s lifestyle, and you'd be going through there, and you'd be seeing, and not 1950s lifestyle in any kind of legal sense, how, do, you know, how dare you have bell-bottoms, you have to wear a suit and tie. No, it's just what's the basic technology level? And so, you know, the next one over might have gone for the 1880s, and they have they have a lot of they have canal boats. Of course, all of all of Retrotopia has canal boats. So it's a very efficient technology. But they have there you see horse-drawn wagons going along the roads, and you see um, you don't see electric wires going loop de loop de loop from power poles across the landscape because that's not they're not in an electric tier. They chose it themselves. The lower tier you go, the lower your taxes get. The higher tier you go, the higher the taxes you get. You pay for what you want. And if you're not satisfied, of course, you can sell out and go to another county that has a different tier. And so, it, but it was a way, it was, I, I'm not, as with so much in Retrotopia, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. It is a utopian you know, story, you know. It, the point was to get people thinking about, okay, how much technology do I actually need? How much technology do I actually want? How much technology am I actually willing to pay for out of my own pocket? So, so I'm curious, JMG, kind of on this theme of people looking for what level of technology they want to live at. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, actually, there's two questions. I'm speaking now in the second of it. But what was your motivation for moving to Rhode Island? I don't remember exactly where you lived before, but I'm wondering, was that part of kind of looking to position yourself for this descent? Um, yes, it was. Actually, I've, my, my wife and I have, have done a lot of moving, which is not something I really had in mind. Um, we were in Seattle for many years. I grew up in the South Seattle suburbs. We, moved, we settled in Seattle when, when we first got married back in 1984. And we lived there until, until what was it, 2004? And it became very clear at that point that Seattle was going to be hopelessly unsustainable, even in the short term. It was um, becoming horribly polluted. It was becoming a dirty, um, just the, everything, everything pleasant about Seattle had been destroyed at that point. And the Seattle city government could see nothing wrong with it because as far as they were concerned, housing prices were rising, so everything was fine. And so it was turning into Los Angeles North, so we left. Uh, we spent five years in a little town in far southern Oregon, Ashland, Oregon, and just as partly that was that was the first option we had. That was the place that looked like an option first. We lived there. We realized what some of the problems were on the on that whole side of the country. Then we moved um, all, most of the way across the country to a little town in the north central Appalachians, Cumberland, Maryland, and we lived there for what was it, eight years? And probably would still be there, except we were because my, my wife's health is not good, and she, in particular, she has um, some issues with diet. Um, she is allergic to a lot of things, and so we have to be able to get certain specialty foods. And it was coming increasingly hard to get those in a little town in the in the North Central Appalachians. Transport was becoming problematic, and at that time, I needed to get out so that I could do speaking tours and things like that. We looked into various options and moved to, ended up moving to Rhode Island as a place where we would have more access to the resources she, need, she needs, better transportation, some other options. And so we settled in a, a very pleasant working-class neighborhood in East Providence um, where we are still located and are hoping not to have to move again. Thanks. 
Um, I, in setting up the meeting with you, I had to laugh in an email I sent to Jason and Ashley. I picture you sitting on an old PC MS-DOS computer and using AOL over dial-up to access <laughs> the internet now, email. Now, I've used dial-up, I'll have you know. I have you. I, I used. I didn't. I never. I never got stuck. Got caught into AOL. That's well, thank heavens. The, the, but the point of that but is no. Just... But I. But but I no. My first computer. My first computer was um, was a Sanyo MBC five fifty, which had two five and a quarter floppy disks and no hard drive. It was a lovely little machine for what it would do. <laughs> And so, no. These days, these days, I use um, we we have we have respectable internet service. And um, but I my, my my compromise with the technology is that I get all my computers used. I keep mm-hmm. and they're, they're all they're all old. They are all well back behind the current state of the art technology. I get them for mostly for free. People want to get rid of them, so I keep them out of the waste stream. Mm. Um. We have one audience question um, I want to uh, read to you. Hello, audience. Uh, yeah, so here, um, it, two people asked a similar question. Um, would be curious how he sees the demographic trend towards greater and greater weight of elderly people fitting into the vision, his vision of the future and its possibilities. And someone said, echoed basically the conflict between rapid population aging and the concept of returning to manual production on the land. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people are pretty interested in digging into these demographic and mm-hmm. material questions as to what to expect. Like, what is our society going to look like? So, um, some thoughts about that population. Okay. Okay. So, the thing, the thing to keep in mind is that behind this demographic, behind the the current demographic, the overhang of old people and so on, is a very simple fact: global population growth is peaking. And, we, and is moving very rapidly toward the beginning of a prolonged decline. Um, in most of the world at this point, population growth has peaked and gone negative. Africa is the only continent in the world that still has positive population growth, and we'll see how long that lasts. Um, they, they're saying not, you know, that it's going to keep on growing for the indefinite future, but 10 years ago they were saying that of Latin America, and Latin American population growth has dropped off a cliff. The same is true of the Middle East, which was another place they were saying, oh, population growth will continue there through 2150. Nope, it's already in contraction. Um, we, the world is overcrowded. We've got 8 billion people on a planet that can support about 2 billion. So the demographic shifts we are talking about are part of the normal process by which population peaks and declines. And it's likely to decline fairly quickly. Um, we've, already, we've already had one pandemic. There will doubtless be others. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a substantial overhang of elderly people. Now, this does not mean that we're going to have millions and millions of retirees sitting on the beach while a handful of you know, of, of working of working age people work for them. Um, retirement was a temporary phenomenon made possible by the age of oil. Okay. Um, before then, people didn't retire unless they like were too sick to work, and then either they found someone to take care of them or they didn't do too well. Um, we will be moving into a similar situation. We're already moving into that situation now. You see a lot of elderly people who who have to work, and because you know retirement is not an option for a growing number of people. So 
one of the things that will definitely change as we proceed is that the entire concept of automatic retirement is going to go away. And another aspect is that we're going to have to get used to a contracting society. Nobody, nobody has really grasped this yet. What it means when the amount of real estate we have is too much for the population. Okay. Everyone's used to the idea that real estate prices should keep on going. If you buy a house at 100000 you should sell it at 200000 Imagine what you're going to do when, due to supply and demand, you buy a house for 100000 You better hope you can get 50000 out of it when you finally move in. You know, uh, That's the world of contraction. That's the world we're heading into. And so demographic contraction is happening. Um, it is accelerating. The, the current pandemic has really, um, not even so much the, the disease itself, but the amount of social isolation and the disruption of the economy and so on. You're going to see a baby bust on the grand scale over the years immediately ahead. And so as that accelerates, we're moving into unparalleled ter- territory, certainly unparalleled, unparalleled in recent times. Go back and read some books on the on the, the latter end, the latter uh, centuries of the Roman Empire. They were in the same situation. Population was contracting steadily, and you ended up. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of one one Roman city where, in the transition toward the Dark Ages, everyone just up and moved into the old Colosseum and built their own little kind of micro city there, because there weren't enough people left to keep up the city. So that's what we're looking at over the broad term. We're looking at a situation where abandoned houses, suburbs where nobody lives anymore, um, scenes like you'll find in Detroit right now where they have, what, 10% of the population they had in the boom days? Um, But that's normal. That's what the country, that's what the world looks like, where there are more old people than young people, Mm -hmm. generation after generation after generation. Yeah, this brings to mind, you know, our, our region, kind of the Southern Appalachia bioregion is, is known for the Foxfire series, where oh, yeah. a bunch of high school students went out and found old timers uh, mm-hmm. who are still living, you know, according to mm-hmm. old ways to learn yeah. their ways and document them. I'm, um, I'm very familiar with the series. I love those books. Yeah, yeah it's, uh-huh. it's a, I feel like it's a great resource and some, mm-hmm. you know, a great resource for, for where I live. Uh, and and for anybody anywhere, but these were you know old timers who were still very capable. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they they still knew how to take care of themselves, even in you know their eighties, nineties. Um, mm-hmm. And it was hopeful that these young kids were wanting to learn. And I hope I hope that happens again, right? I hope mm-hmm. I hope that the young younger generation, as you're saying, seeks out these old timers, uh, maybe through these grange halls and. I definitely you. go go to your go to your local Oddfellows and Grange Hall. You'll find the old timers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it is a it is a very different way to experience life when the guy sitting next to you in the lodge um, can't walk very well because he suffered frostbite winning a medal fighting the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge. Mm. Mm. That's sad. I've, I've done that. <laughs> I've had that experience. <laughs> so yeah, it's it definitely it, it's definitely a way to, a, a different way to look at life. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that happens too. Unfortunately, we also have a lot of old people who do not necessarily know a lot of useful skills, yeah. and who have who have a rather overinflated sense of entitlement. And I'm afraid they may have a very rough time dealing with the way the way things work out over the over the years to come. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah I can think of you know uh, one kind of source of trade is you know younger younger folks 
providing some of the the labor and the help you know mm -hmm. of, for the old timers in exchange for for the wisdom um and, and this mm -hmm. this is how it's always been until the last hundred years or so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a normal way things operate. Yeah. That's that's why people took in apprentices, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. And you know, and very often, um, you know, the, the farm would have a bunch of various young people coming in who would be working at the farm. They'd be they'd be fed along with the family. They'd, you know, they'd basically just and they would learn the craft of farming from older, experienced farmers, providing some muscle. And you know, we need to get back to that. Um, I would encourage any of our listeners who are old or getting on for old to start thinking about what do they actually have to offer? What do they know? Or what can they learn in a hurry? Now, if, you know, it used to be, among other things, that it also happened that a younger family would take in an older relative who would help with child care and do some other things like that and, again, contribute to the family. But it's all going to be a matter of contributing. It's not going to be a matter of just sitting back on the beach and you know and enjoying your retirement. That is that that is fading in the rearview mirror right now. Yeah. Well, JMG, we're uh, I think we're going to wrap up soon. But I, I wanted to give the opportunity if, if there was any if there's any question that you would have liked us to ask or or you just okay. wish somebody would ask you. Um, <laughs> is there no, a question the thing is, that? And do you the, want to the thing is. You, you, hit, you hit the crucial points. Um, above all else, what can you do, and why isn't it a matter of apocalypse or you know, progress or apocalypse? We got, if, if, I could, if I could get those two points made into the business end of a branding iron and brutally, <laughs> brutally burn them into the buttocks of every young person in North America, I would do it. Because the sooner you start thinking, okay, what can I actually do? Because we're not facing apocalypse, we're just facing a long, slow, ragged decline like the one we've been in for the last, you know, 50 years. If people grasp that, then, then it's time to get optimistic because at that point, the possibilities for constructive change are, are immense. I love that. I mean, I couldn't, it could not, we could not end on any um, more Doomer Optimist note. So um, <laughs> on that note, JMG, thank you so much. This was uh, so, uh, I mean, you're, you're basically saying everything that we're ha have been saying over the past, you know, year of, of doing this project. So um, I'm, I'm, I am delighted to hear that. And thank you very much for having me on.